Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. On today's show, we'll be diving into the world of family constellations, and we'll be featuring our guest, Dan Cohen, who's a PhD and an internationally known psychologist, trainer, author, and facilitator of family and systemic constellations. He also specializes in healing the effects of inherited trauma and helping clients fulfill their desires for having more love and deeper impact in their lives. He uses his knowledge of world history, mythology, and culture with his intuitive abilities, and he creates profound and transformative healing experiences that expand understanding and restore peace of mind. I'm super excited to welcome Dan Cohen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Yasmin. It's a pleasure to uh, be with you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So I have asked uh, many members of the audience what topics they're interested in learning about, and family constellations has come up quite a bit. And, you know, I also, you know, in full disclosure, don't know much about family constellations other than the little bits and pieces I've read. So I'm super excited to learn from you uh, what this process is like, what does it mean, how does it transform lives. So maybe you could just kick it off for folks who also might be beginners to family constellations. What is family constellation therapy? Uh, sure, uh, that's a uh, that's a great place to start. Family constellations are a experiential process that allow people to start with a situation that they have in their life that feels problematic or burdensome to them or a way that they're being held back and look and see how it is part of a larger tapestry of emotion and behavior and relationships that has come to them through their family lineage. And in the context of their everyday it seems insolvable and very difficult to make progress with. But when you open up the awareness and bring in the generations, you can actually access support and relief and blessings from past generations in a way that allow the weight of the problem to lift and for people to be able to step forward with more freedom into their intentions and desires uh, for their lives. Mm, beautiful. So what you're saying is, you know, people who have maybe some emotional experiences or um, emotional ailments, it's connected to kind of a larger uh, sequence of generations. And so my uh, question is, how can you tell if something is inherited um, or if something is created within one's own life. Like maybe we could take, for example, something like, um, you know, hunger or uh, having a, a desire to eat too much, for example. Um, and feel free to pick another example if if there's others that are more popular. But I'm just curious, like how can you tell uh, which is which? Well, there are a few markers that can tell the difference between what I call a family entanglement and a, a something that is uh, within one's own life experience. One of the markers is that the ordinary techniques and therapies and tools that are readily available seem to be very ineffective. And there are certainly a host of good therapies and other types of 
cognitive and behavioral tools that work on a whole range of situations that people find themselves in that they want to improve. The ones that are super resistant to those tools, it's usually an indication that there is an entanglement involved. That's that's one marker. Another marker is that people recognize within themselves that the feeling that they have doesn't feel like them. So a situation of someone feeling an anger or rage coming over them, and they're expressing that rage, but inside of them, there's a recognition that this doesn't feel like me. Or it might be someone who has a sense of uh, abandonment and uh, rejection from their family, but they're actually living in a very loving and well-connected family, that their their sisters are there and their parents are very attentive to them, and yet they have this feeling of not belonging. And that would be another indicator that there's a kind of a mismatch between the person's lived experience, which in, in that case would be very connected and loving, and the person's inner feeling, which is to be alone and abandoned. And that would indicate that there is uh, almost someone within them who feels alone and abandoned that comes through the lineage. They're feeling someone else's emotion. And this would be the indicator to go trace and find out who that was and, and release it. Wow. Super interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people have uh, aspects of themselves that feel like, hey, that's not actually me. It feels like there's a you know, some third party or some some kind of maybe unconscious aspect of self that's that's, you know, creating emotions or feeling emotions that don't make sense within our, our life. Um, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I come from the Middle East and I think for a lot of people that come from, or their families come from regions in which there has been war, I imagine that, you know, it probably stays longer than just one generation. So is there, in your work, have you um, seen, you know, how many generations this applies to? It can go back many generations. It typically can go back three, four, or five generations, and it can often go back further in cases where the were really severe traumas. And uh, sometimes it it also blends into uh, some older memes. So in uh, places where there had been uh, kind of mass movements or expulsions of people or massacres of different types that those can really be carried over for many, many generations. In, uh, in uh, Kosovo, uh, Serbia, that area, there was a, a war there from 800 years ago that uh, remained very active and, and people really felt in their bodies uh, the sense of displacement even centuries later. It's, it's not unusual. Wow. Wow. Dan, you talk about the three essential aspects of our being, uh, which is our creative sexual energy, our heart's perception of the consciousness that surrounds us, and our crown chakra uh, that connects the light of our soul to, to the light of the universe. Why is this so important? Um, it's on your website. I know it's uh, some of the kind of uh, aspects that you've been um, cultivating in your work. And so can you tell us a little bit about, about these three essential aspects, what they mean? Yes. What we're, the reason I'm focusing on those is because in the, the modern technological scientific uh, worldview that most of the world is living in, there's, there is a underlay of the indigenous, the traditional cultures 
And then built on top of that is the modern uh, scientific world. And, and different places in the world, there are uh, different relationships. Uh, the, the Middle East has a much stronger uh, underlay of the traditional cultures, whereas in Europe, those older cultures have almost disappeared completely, and the modern scientific culture has taken over. And in the modern culture, these aspects of our body, our creative sexual energy, our heart perception of the consciousness that surrounds us, and our crown chakra, uh, have uh, it's they've practically been amputated. They've been so suppressed by the this dominant culture. So sexuality is shamed and uh, oppressed, and sexual pleasure is denied and and uh, treated as something uh, dark or or evil that the ability within our hearts that we have for communication, to be able to communicate across distances, to be able to be in connection with the the lineage that we have through the back doors of our heart and the front doors of our heart, to be able to connect, that that's really been truncated. And, And also that a lot of our mind has just been translated down into our brains, as if everything that is a part of our awareness or identity is just uh, produced by the neural activity of our brains. And so that is also a type of cutting off. So a lot of my work is opening up these body centers uh, to awareness, to, to allow people to reconnect to the, the body that evolution has taken billions of years to create for us that has all of these capabilities that uh, a lot of people don't fully use. Can you tell our audience what the crown chakra is for those who might not know what that means? Because I know that was one of the third aspects. Uh, the, the crown chakra, it's just, it's, you know, shorthand for uh, just the, the our body's uh, capacity at the, at the uh, top of our head uh, to be able to interact with spirit. So it is, um, uh, it's in yoga culture, in um, uh, Middle Eastern culture, it is uh, typically considered the a uh, place where spirit energy comes in, where prayers kind of leave the body and go up, and where spirit energy comes in, and it's a it's just an energetic center of the body, and the the you know chakra is um, just a you know a common term that uh, not everybody's familiar with uh, for that that part of our body. So I'm really interested in the you know the top of our head, our heart, um, the bottom of our feet, which is where energetically we connect to the earth. And then also the, where the sexual life force is and the, that uh, where the reproductive and the creative uh, energy force is in our bodies. And, and just being able to allow people to, to really be able to use the, the beauty of our human body for all its capabilities. And Dan, you know, you talked about this in just the earlier point, and I want to go back to it really quick, which is this kind of um, balancing nature between tradition and I would say modernism. How do you um, balance that in your work? Like, I think so much of Western culture, like you mentioned, is is largely uh, focused in the head, um, and then some traditional cult- cultures are are focused in the heart um, and in the spirit. But I, I find that it's been very difficult to create a bridge, and so I'm just you know curious if you could maybe share an example or two of of some of the work that you do with family constellations uh, to show us like how you bring that into balance for people and maybe what comes up. Generally, the, the distinction that I make is that in indigenous cultures, 
which would, I, I think of intact cultures that have uh, very deep connections, uh, century-long connections with land and with culture, that all, all of these teachings are, are, they're in the water that people drink and the air that they breathe. It's, it's not, uh, family constellations would not really be necessary in an in intact indigenous culture. But more and more, people are not living in those cultures anymore. There's been a lot of displacement, a lot of modernism, and the, you know, the technology and the capabilities that they bring are, are wonderful. We have grocery stores rather than having to farm our own food and we can travel all over the world. It, it's really marvelous to, to have this technology. And at the same time, it, it cuts us off from these traditions. And for many of us, we, we can't really just go back to the traditions that we came from because either they don't exist or there's a lot of intermarriage going on or interculture. We're living in neighborhoods where there's an Indian place, a Chinese place, a Thai restaurant, a Middle Eastern restaurant, all on the same block. And we're going to school and work with people from all around the world. And so there's an evolutionary movement to be able to bring some of the wisdom of the ancient sciences uh, together with the uh, capabilities of the modern technological and create an evolutionary movement. So it's it's neither going back to the old ways, nor is it being stuck in the kind of dry and sterile scientific worldview, but creating a new worldview, a new way to stand that that is, for me, it's more mystical, it's more magical, and it, it draws on both of those streams to create something new. Mm. And Dan, can you tell us like what the actual process is like for family constellations? Like, can you maybe break it down? Like a person comes in to work with you, they've got some issue or is that something that also you un kind of unravel? Uh, what is it? What does that whole process look like? Can you walk us through that? Sure thing. So I, I work, I've been working with the process for 20 years. And so I, I, do it in a particular way that you somewhat unique to me. It's still family constellations. And I, I work with a lot of my colleagues and we do trainings. But if you go to a practitioner, you may see it done a little bit differently than the way I'm doing it. But I'll, I'll describe my, my, my practice. I'm doing a lot of my work with individuals and especially now with the pandemic that we can't do live groups. So we're uh, my partner and I, who is also a facilitator, we're doing one to one sessions and we're doing them mostly on Zoom. I start with the person's intention or their desire. I don't start with the problem. I start with what, what do you want for your life? What is it that feels unfulfilled or something that you're trying to manifest or create in your life? And does it feel blocked or do you feel a burden? And uh, you have difficulty kind of stepping forward. So my job is to be able to fulfill their intention or to fulfill their desire. Uh, it, in, in doing so, I solve the problem, but it's not the entree point is what's your problem? How can I fix it? It's what do you want for yourself? What do you want for your life? And how can we create that for you? And then we look at what's in the way. So we start with the conversation and then the kind of the special a feature of constellations that you wouldn't find in typical therapy is that we're not it's not talk therapy. We're not working so much with the narratives or the the conversation uh, that a person has a description of their problem. I, I don't need much of a description, a, a few minutes, five or 10 minutes to understand what the desire is and what the uh, problem is. And at that point, I tune in, which is just for a minute or two, I just close my eyes and images come into my awareness. 
and and the person I'm working with does the same and they, they will receive some images. We share those. And then I stand up and I do what's called represent. Uh, I use representative perception. And, and in groups, you have people in a group that would represent, but one-on-one I'm doing the representations and the person I'm working with also will represent. And I'll start by uh, feeling the, the intention, the desire, I'll feel what that's like. And then I'll feel the the burden or the block. And because I do this every day, I've been doing it for years and years, I, I'm very good at it, but everybody can do this. You can actually feel in your body, you can access the consciousness of someone else's field of consciousness. You can feel their ancestors. You can feel the, the world that they're living in. This is just something that evolution has given to the body that has it's hasn't been terribly well encouraged, but everybody can do this to one extent or another, like music. And so I feel in, and I get a sense of what the problem feels like, and then I start to trace the lineage. So I'll stand as a problem, I'll step, take a step back, and I'll feel the father in relation to that problem and the mother, and which one has the more energy. And then say it's the mother, I'll step back and I'll feel grandmother and grandfather, which one has the most energy. And as I go back, I start to actually feel which ancestor and what was the situation that occurred that is creating this emotion of the block or burden. And we we go back and we find the ancestor that it is associated with. I work back and forth with the person so that everything is being kind of tested and I'm getting validation from them that it's in tune, that it's I'm not just giving them a reading, but we're really doing this because we're co-creating the process and find the ancestor. And then I can actually access the consciousness of the ancestor and I do a healing between the ancestor and their uh, living child. And we can actually heal both generations. And when we do that healing, the the burden lifts, it, it evaporates, and the ancestor feels healed and connected, and the a child, the living person, and an adult, but a child of the ancestor, uh, feels this, this release a big exhale, a weight lifted off their shoulder, and uh, the problem has, uh, in a sense, evaporated, and they're free to step towards their intention, and that's what they do. Wow. Dan, so in some of these cases, um, what are some uh, stories or or themes that that have come up uh, in this process? I imagine that there's probably recurring themes that you've seen over a 20-year span, and and I'm curious if you could uh, share with us maybe one or two or stories of people that might have healed um, not only emotional, but maybe even a physical ailment. I imagine that, that there could be both. So a, a woman that I, I worked with recently contacted me. She's um, uh, she's about to become a grandmother for the first time. Uh, she has two uh, children and her son her son's partner is pregnant and, and was going to be giving births in the next few weeks. And they fell into this terrible estrangement where the daughter-in-law and the mother-in-law fell into this terrible conflict. And the daughter-in-law was kind of cutting off the relationship. The son was taking his wife's side and was telling his mother not to come, that she doesn't, uh, his wife doesn't trust her and doesn't want her around the baby. And that they're going to just have the baby on their own. And uh, they don't want her to, uh, to to come and visit or even to see the baby. And, of course, this, this woman was distraught because this was going to be her first grandchild. And 
she was uh, really almost desperate to be able to solve this problem. And they, of course, argued about it. And and every time they argue and discuss and fight, it seems like it gets worse. So we we do the constellation. I'm only working with this, the grandmother-to-be. I'm not, not communicating in any way with the children. And they don't even need to know that this process has happened. And we do what I just described. We, we feel, you know, where is the conflict between mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, where the son was caught in the middle and the, there was an estrangement and, and the family was cut off from the father's family, the new family. And uh, so we do the process and we, we find the entanglement, heal the entanglement. And I spoke to her a few weeks later, I think three or four weeks later, uh, she called back and uh, she said that um, they've prepared the, the in-law apartment for her. They are so excited oh that she's coming <laughs> and they, uh, you know, they can't wait. She was actually flying out the next day. She was uh, at a distance from where they were and she was uh, she wanted to speak to me before she got on the plane. And uh, they were uh, the, the young couple was uh, ex- so excited that uh, grandma was going to be there for the birth. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That's powerful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's my day job. I mean, I could, I don't know if you want another one or that's, uh, yeah, I love, I love hearing these stories. Yeah. If we, you can share another one. I worked recently with a woman that has uh, a thyroid issue, uh, where her, uh, uh, her thyroid levels are, uh, are, are hers are very low and her father also has a thyroid issue very high. And she is, um, he's taking medication. She's trying to get her levels, uh, back without having to take the medication. I do work with thyroid quite a bit. Thyroid is, is a, it's kind of a sponge that holds emotion. And so you can, uh, and it, it gets overwhelmed. It, it is a type of filter, uh, sponge when there's excess emotion in the body, it, the, thyroid absorbs it and ends up being, can end up being overwhelmed by it. So similar, we, we do the constellation, we're tuning in and putting in the representatives. The thing that I felt was, uh, tears, uh, just a lot of grief and sadness is deep grief and sadness, uh, that was being absorbed and an inability to grieve. Uh, and we traced back and we found the, uh, uh an ancestor in the father's lineage uh, that had a very tragic uh, life and the process of kind of digesting that emotion had never been completed and it kind of cascaded on to the next generations and the next generations. And so we, uh, again, release, we're able to release the entanglement and the uh, levels uh, the next time that the, this uh, uh, person had a blood test, their, their le- uh, levels were normal. Wow, that is incredible. Mm-hmm. I can listen to these stories all day. <laughs> I mean, it's like the chicken soup for the soul of of uh, family constellations and healing. <laughs> right. It's it's quite remarkable. It's really it's kind of challenging for me that it's not more readily available. And you know, I understand in a sense. Uh, here, take this pill every day for the rest of your life has a lot of uh, appeal to it in the marketplace compared to here, take, you know, spend two hours looking at what the source is and, and heal it. And then you don't have to come back. So it is sometimes it's a little bit frustrating for me that, uh, that this work has not really caught on or gotten the traction that it, that it deserves. 
And of course, there's, um, you know, there's also we're in a, in a big sea of a lot of false promises and over promises uh, for different things. And it's very hard for people to cut through the noise. You can just flip through a magazine and you can find, you know, 25 remedies for your thyroid. And if you, you know, tried all of them, uh, you know, you'd just be out a lot of money and you'd probably still have you probably still have thyroid issues. And and I, I don't know how anybody would tell that that constellations are any different than the other ones in the background. I mean, I know, but I can understand that it's it's challenging for people to, uh, you know, to be able to on, on these different levels to be able to embrace the the potential of this. But I do this day in and day out, and it's it's practically one miracle after another. Wow. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I think for most people, and especially in the Western culture, we don't spend any time thinking about our ancestors. I, I mean, you know, just based on my own experience of growing up in the U.S., uh, I think a lot of my friends would speak about their grandparents, but when it got to their great-grandparents or their great-great-grandparents, I think very few people even know, like, who they were, what their names were. Um, you know, anything really about them. And I kind of speak on behalf of myself as well. If I go back after my great grandmother, I don't actually know what the the story is. So it's very interesting that um, even just like acknowledging this long line of ancestors changes, I think, the way you perceive yourself in the world. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. Right. I mean, we're in a kind of a world of disconnection. And so to be connected isn't, is empowering. And it's possible to the, the information is in is is in people's heart and it is surrounding them. Uh, so it's you know possible to tune in and represent for oneself and and or do different types of practices or rituals that you can really learn about your ancestors. You don't you can search on ancestry.com or whatever on a computer, but it's it that's one type of information that comes in. But you can also access the information through your own representation and really feel and create relationships with these uh, ancestors, people in your lineage that um, uh, that all the struggles uh, of their lives uh, contributed to, to your good life. And and that there's still there's still a love there that is a resource uh, for people to feel a continuing and, and a continuous source of love for their life. Dan, you talk about some of the benefits uh, with this work on your site, um, things like understanding historic and mythic fractals, which I want to actually ask you what that is, uh, mythic fractals. Um, I haven't heard those two words put together. And then coming to terms with your shadow perpetrator and aligning with your heart's desire and soul's purpose. Can you speak to us about what those benefits mean, kind of maybe more in layman's terms? Okay. Uh, uh, sure. Yeah. I really, um, love to go there. So one can think of a woman and it's interesting, Yasmin, because you're, you know, you have this podcast and so you're, you're using your voice as, as part of your, your work. But for a lot of women, they really feel a block in their throat when they want to express themselves in a public forum. And not necessarily to their sisters or within their family, they feel more free to speak. But to do this kind of podcast and speak to uh, a large audience or speak in front of a of a at a you know business meeting, uh, they have ideas and things that they want to say, uh, and they feel blocked. They they feel this 
just force of oppression within them that they they shouldn't speak. And you can trace that culturally. And of course, you know, perhaps in the family that they came from, the uh, women were uh, more silent and, and you can see it just within the family system. But if you start tracing it back uh, into the larger cultural field, uh, you can find that this is a has been a a principle that has been enforced for, you know, many, many centuries within the culture that that women are not to use their voice, that women are to be uh, seen and and seen as beautiful, uh, but they are not to speak in the public square. They're not to express themselves in the in a in a man's world. And so as you trace this back, you'll find a source of this as well. And it may be uh, centuries old. Uh, we find in, in European culture, if you go back 400 years, you come to the time of the, the witch hunts and the witch burning, uh, which is a time when in, indigenous women were hunted down and, and murdered by the tens of thousands all throughout Europe. And these were women that, that held the wisdom of plant medicine. They were the healers. They were the leaders in their community. And in the uh, cultural shifts of the creation of the nation states of Europe, uh, they were really persecuted. And so even though that's four centuries ago, uh, a lot of women today still uh, feel the stigma that they'll be branded crazy. They'll be uh, ostracized or, or kicked out or persecuted if they if if they start to uh, feel some of this uh, women's uh, healing capacity within themselves or to start to speak their mind. And so that's kind of a historical fractal. But you can just continue going back and find a deeper source in myth. And and we go back to you can go back to the myth of Isis and Osiris uh, in the Egyptian myths. You can go into the Sumerian myths and you find uh, these uh, women goddesses, Inanna, uh, who's a Sumerian goddess. And the, the stories are the same of of how the women's voices at the cultural shift from the earth goddesses to the sun god that women's voices were uh, cut off and uh, their power was was robbed from them. And so even in these uh, mythic stories, there is a way that those figures are still present uh, within the the modern world and modern women. If you you find them, you have to, people are not aware of it ordinarily, but if you trace the first feeling that, that you have a woman in a staff meeting who has an idea, but she's afraid to, to say anything. Uh, and you trace it back. You can go all the way back to the beginning of history with it and find a, a source for it. Um, that's the um, that's the historic and mythic fractal. Should I, I go on to the shadow perpetrator? Yes, please. Yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, um, I try, I've tried to be concise, but um, uh, it's a little, um, I, I get, you know, kind of pulled into this. Uh, the shadow perpetrator is is basically that it's how much easier it is to uh, see other people's faults uh, than to be aware of how we are contributing to our own uh, problems. So well, you can see in it like in a marriage, uh, it's very clear that if you talk to uh, a partner in a marriage, and particularly usually the the wife, because generally the wives are more aware of what's going on. 
in a marriage and the, the men are a little bit more oblivious and they don't really get what's going on so much as a stereotype, that the women will be very aware if you ask a woman about her marriage, she'll start telling you what's wrong with her husband. Uh, and she'll be less aware of her own, the shadow of her own way of contributing to having a husband who disappoints her in a certain way. And she might be able to find that, oh, uh, my mother was disappointed in my father in the same way. My grandmother was disappointed in my grandfather in the same way. And there kind of creates a, a sense uh, that we pick bad men or like all men are bad, or I just hate men, or whatever whatever it is, that there's a flaw in men. But that when we say shadow, it's a part that's not seen, is that there is, women are also contributing, the men contribute 100%, and the women contribute 100% within a marriage. So the shadow perpetrator is, is just a, a phrase that describes how a person in a relationship is contributing to the thing that they don't like about that relationship as much as the other person is. And, and the, because it's in the shadow, it's not seen. And our process is to bring it out into the light so people can really recognize how they're contributing to what they don't like in the relationship as much as their partner and their, their partner's flaws. I'm hanging on to your every word, so I'm excited to hear about <laughs> what's next with the heart's desire and soul's purpose. I have, you know, I, I've actually spent quite a lot of time thinking about uh, the shadow and our unconscious side, and we've actually had a couple guests speak about this, and especially in terms of relationship, like that sometimes um, the partner that we pick expresses like the unconscious uh, masculine or feminine uh, shadow that we actually don't um we don't own, um, ourselves. So yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to hear what's next about the heart's desire. Uh, so in the, the, the heart's desire and the soul purpose is there's a one sense that our body and our souls are often, uh, in conflict with each other. Very often people are, when I say soul, I'm, I'm th I think of soul as the core identity that exists with or without a body. Uh, not everybody has this, the same outlook. You can, people can hold it in all different ways and it, and it all works. That's the way that I'm holding it based on my experience of what I've seen. Uh, but it's not, um, I don't want to to, um, you know, get too narrow in, in what that necessarily means. But this, this soul in a sense is a, is a core identity that comes into life with a purpose. So people are born, uh, you could think of it as karma in, you know, one sense, uh, uh, soul is another way of putting it. There's other words for it as well, but we come into life with a certain purpose of what we're here for. What is, our life going to be about? What kind of impact are we meant to have? What are we trying to do or work through in our lifetime? And we're very often, many people are born into families that conflict with that purpose as, as actually as a way of creating the friction and the kind of the, the contraction that uh, creates the ground for that purpose to be fulfilled. But whereas the heart is created by the body, 
So within the heart's desire is the inheritance because the heart is, we get our heart from our mother and from our father. And so the inheritance of the lineage comes to our heart and our heart desires usually something that is in relationship to healing what's in the family system. Uh, So we have what comes through our family that we're trying to heal. And we have what comes from our soul that we're, that is a purpose, what we're trying to accomplish. And very often those are in conflict with each other. So when I speak about aligning your heart's desire and your soul's purpose is to be able to look at ways to harmonize those. It, it really means a lot of times working through the, the blocks and entanglements in the lineage and then allow the, the heart's desire to really be not be sourced by trying to heal the past, but connect to the soul and the soul's purpose and come into alignment. And that actually creates a really powerful ground for a person to be able to step forward and to be able to accomplish uh, what they're here to do. Wow. And this is uh, some of the, the work that you do in your workshops, or is this done one-on-one or, or is it kind of both? Uh, this is a bit the bigger work in the classes and the programs that we're running. So the individual work is more kind of problem solving and direct healing, uh, like the thyroid uh, uh, type of thing or a situation that I described. But the these bigger uh, themes about about desire and purpose, uh, both my partner Emily and I have uh, offerings. We before the pandemic we did it all together. We did workshops and trainings and immersions. Since the pandemic, we're offering. Uh, our, our offerings are individual. So she has a uh, offering that she's doing, which she calls um, Empowered Empath and Sage Soul, which is a program for individuals that goes over four months. And it's a program for individuals to just really get into contact with what's their soul purpose. How can they access the guides and the resources that their soul brings uh, into this life to be able to fulfill uh, to recognize what are their entanglements and how are they in relationship to their family, to their body. And then she also has a lot of practices that she teaches. So that she has full moon ceremonies and new moon ceremonies and how to work with objects to be able to manifest and to work with sound and sound healing to all, all types of things like that. A lot of uh, practices that, that people can use with with fire, with water, uh, with nature, with plants, all, all those type of things to be able to support uh, uh, individuals, it's mostly women in, in her program, not all, but mostly women, uh, to be able to just access, have more resource in their life for, to, for fulfillment. My class is called science, myth, magic, and mystery. It's a little bit more of a mix of half and half women and men. And it's more about looking at the collective. And it's, so it's for people who are working in professionally in different fields, who want to have a bigger impact in, the, in their uh, work. So I have physicians, educators, uh, psychologists, uh, there's an ayahuasca server, there's a shaman, uh, executive coaches, et cetera, a judge is in it. Wow. And, <laughs> and, and we're looking at collective uh, issues uh, around uh, racism and class and science and how the uh, the collective forces of culture and society, of faith and belief, are 
uh, just need an upgrade for the 21st century, that the that the past centuries gave us a culture and we need to evolve a new culture. And the core really has to do with consciousness, that human consciousness has so much capability, more capability than our culture allows. So part of the work I'm doing and be able to access ancestral consciousness, to be able to work with the the relationships between the living and the dead, to um, uh, work with uh, telepathy or um, uh, different types of intuition, that that these these are built into the human body. The evolution created them and it's time to bring them into the culture and to be able to start being able to manifest and educate uh, professionals that the that the culture has brought us so far, but it's brought us to climate change, to perpetual wars, to the pandemic, uh, this you know virus which is caused by environmental factors, and, and all of these things. We we need an upgrade to the way that humans are living on the earth, and we need to do it in a short amount of time. And so that that's that's the focus of my class. Wow. I want to sign up for that. That sounds incredible. And I'd love to have you. <laughs> yes. it's These are topics I, I am very fascinated and interested in. Um, and I'm wondering, Dan, uh, have you seen any major shifts in this work uh, since the pandemic started? Like, How has that um, maybe influenced uh, the collective mind? Well, I mean, there's you know, the, the pandemic overall has been, uh, you know, a pretty major uh, catastrophe for humanity, uh, economically, health wise, all the, the, the deaths and the, the displacement. So it's it has been, uh, you know, a really negative event for humanity. And at the same time, it has had some positive effects. It hasn't been all uh, terrible. And the places where I've seen that the, the benefits are is it's it's gotten people off the hamster wheel. It's gotten them out of commuting back and forth every day to, and being in an office with people that they can't stand and doing a job that is kind of soul killing to them. And it's allowed people to have more time of quiet time for themselves, to be more introspective, to be able to connect with loved ones and themselves on a different level. And to be able to really ask some questions about what their purpose is, why are they here? Uh, because the the kind of frenzied uh, work uh, people did of just trying to get one step in front of another and try to do better tomorrow and next week and get the next raise and get the next promotion and all that, we've kind of like burned that out. And, and now people are asking different questions and and finding different answers. And, and the people I'm working with are, are actually finding some really interesting answers and uh, finding ways to continue to the work, to continue to uh, fit into the economy and, and make a living and, and continue to earn and uh, support their families, but uh, a little bit outside of the, um, the mind-numbingness of the, the uh, pre-pandemic uh, freeway that everybody was stuck in traffic on. Mm. Yes, I have seen that in my own circle, especially in uh, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, I think... Um, most people that were on this tech uh, startup hamster wheel have been asking a lot of the the hardest questions. So I uh, I agree. And Dan, I'd love to hear about your journey 
how did you get into this work? Um, obviously you have a PhD. Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, where you learned your philosophy from and how you decided to pursue and dedicate your, your life's work to, to family constellations? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, you know, I'm in my sixties, so it's like, a, it's, it's a pretty long story, but uh, I know you have audience in the Middle East. So if if I may, can I share some of that story? Because it's a, it's an important component. Yes, please. Uh, and it might be of interest to uh, uh, to your audience. So I'll try to uh, make this brief. When I was uh, starting my career, I got an MBA and I got a job at the Los Alamos Laboratory, which is where the uh, atom bomb uh, had originally been invented and, and built. Uh, after that job was over, I became a peace activist in the city of Cambridge, and I was a founding member of a peace commission that was created to help uh, stop the uh, uh, stop nuclear weapons, uh, stop the creation and the building of nuclear weapons. And I was involved in that, and that led me uh, through a long series of events, which I won't go into. But I ended up uh, in Haifa. And connecting with a group of peace pilgrims that uh, had come from Seattle, Washington. Uh, actually, the the Jesuit priest who was the chaplain for the plane that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima uh, decided when he was in his 60s, around my age, decided he was going to walk from Seattle to Bethlehem on a pilgrimage uh, for peace uh, to be able to stop nuclear war. And I caught up with him at the end and with a group of friends, and we were going to walk from Haifa to Bethlehem, and we just chose that we were going to go right into the West Bank as soon as we could. So we walked uh, inland from Haifa uh, up and down Mount Carmel, and we ended up in the West Bank uh, at Janine. And then I lived in the West Bank for the next four months as a Jewish peace activist, Uh, walked the length of the West Bank uh, to Bethlehem and arrived there on Christmas Eve with with this group that uh, we had uh, caught up with finally in Jerusalem. We actually walked as a small group most of the way. And then I took a room with uh, a couple of friends of mine in Bethlehem and and lived in that community. And what I learned from living in Bethlehem at that time, this, this is in the 80s, was that the way that the Palestinian people were portrayed in the American media was so contrary to my experience of living uh, in Bethlehem in that community. Uh, there, it was unrecognizable that the uh, within the United States and the media, the Palestinian people were, you know, presented as violent terrorists. I mean, really, that's the only way that they ever are presented as violent terrorists. And living in Bethlehem, I found the most hospitable, friendly. Um, wise, well-educated, culturally sophisticated, uh, friendly people. And they they just really wanted their story told. They wanted the the world to see a different picture of them and to be also be able to see what, you know, what life was like for them uh, under the occupation. Uh, And it it, it had a huge impact on me. And so I came home after those months and, and returned back to my work uh, but I remained active in uh, peace activity uh, ever since then, which is now uh, almost 40 years. And I recognize that there was a there was a tool missing that uh, when you try to do peace and, and bring Israelis or Jews and Palestinians together and you 
try to do something for peace, it, it works for a little bit, but it doesn't work for very long and it doesn't really stick. And so I was interested in what was the missing tool. And this is what brought me to Constellations. And so it's been my life's work since. And it really is the, the missing tool in the, in the Peacemaker's Toolkit, I believe, as well as, um, you know, being able to help people in their everyday situations. But for looking at the bigger structures of conflict and violence in the world, uh, I think this is uh, part of this work is also the formula. Wow. <clears throat> I'm sorry, Dan, I got very emotional when you were talking. Um, uh, sorry, just give me a minute. I have never cried on an interview and I'm crying now. <laughs> I think, um, I think that it's okay. Yeah. I think that, um, yeah. Who, who's crying? That's, you know, my question. Who's, who, who's crying? Just take a moment. Just feel who's, who, who are you with? Yeah. I mean, I feel like, um, for sure. It's a, it's a, it's a long line of, I think just, uh, grandmother, grandparents. And I, I think, you know, so much of this story also rem reminds me of, um, you know, the kind of disproportionate, um, amount of, um, maybe not disproportionate, but just the, the, the news that, uh, portrayed um, Iraqis in the first Gulf War um, in a light that was very much about victimization or the antagonist, but never the protagonist. And, you know, and I think that um, that work is really important to just, to just balance the narrative, uh, you know, instead of it being so polarized, I think that, um, you know, that's kind of been my long life mission of, of uh, bringing stories that are, were not told, uh, to, to kind of the mainstream, you know, these, and I, you know, I jokingly say that if you don't tell your story, someone else will tell it for you. And that's what we've seen take place. So, yeah, I just got, I got, I got emotional and I, I think it's so beautiful that you, um, decided to do this kind of peace pilgrimage and, and this walk. And, uh, you know, I think it just touches me because I've, frankly, I grew up Iraqi American, not just Arab American, but Iraqi American during a time where, uh, the country that I was born to was going to war against the country that my parents were from. And I think that experience is, is very interesting. It creates a lot of cognitive dissonance between, you know, your identity, um, and, and, you know, how people act and what does it mean to be human? So just interesting. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. And there's, um, you know, when you go to the myths, I mean, the, 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 uh, founding myths of our, you know, Western civilization, uh, Middle Eastern and European civilization are from, uh, you know, right around Bag Baghdad, those, you know, the, the Tigris and, and, uh, Euphrates rivers that, uh, that meet there. And, and so these, um, you know, gods and goddesses, Inanna and Enki and Gilgamesh are, they're, they're still with us. And it's the, you know, it is the most ancient wisdom tradition of, of humanity. I, I mean, the Hindu and the Chinese as well. And then, you know, Native American, not, not the only one, but, um, the, you know, the wisdom is all there and it's, it's kind of just painted over with, uh, headlines that are aimed to create 
uh, mistrust and, and hostility. And there are such like, you know, deeper truths. I, I really I have such appreciation for for Arab culture in, you know, in all of its ways and, and also recognize the ways that, you know, Arab culture has been misogynist in a lot of ways and and uh, that it, it certainly is it not not to paint it all roses, but there's a way that it that there is, uh, you know, great art and wisdom and beauty as well. That's that's really underappreciated in the um, uh, the way that it's portrayed here in the United States. Yes. Thank you, Dan, for, for sharing your reflections on that. Yeah, it's definitely under, underrepresented. And, um, Dan, I'd love to also just know, like, what sort of things have surprised you in this journey? It seems like you've just had such a incredible life, right? And I'm curious, like, what is the most surprising thing that you've experienced? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I dare say it, but the most surprising thing is that I can talk to dead people like really easily. And I never had any idea that I wouldn't have thought it was possible. And if it was possible, I didn't think that I'd be able to do it. And the only reason I can do it is I started to just look at what it takes to heal people's broken hearts. Like what is what is the formula for healing loneliness in individuals? And I just went step by step and every time I did a process, I tried to do the next process better, try to learn something. And 20 years later, I can, it's like just a cell phone. I can just open up and I can communicate with people's ancestors and people that I'm with feel like their ancestor is in the room and without any description. And I'm not doing it as a medium would to just give affirmations, um, doing a deep healing because a lot of these ancestors are not at peace. They are still in turmoil and the living descendants are in turmoil. So the healing is really between, uh, these realms. And if you would ask me, I would have, I would have found that really comical to think that I'd be doing that. But here I am. And, um, uh, I have no doubt that that's what I do and I'm, I'm good at it I'm, yeah. I'm, at this point. I'm really good at it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm fully on board, uh, with the space. I, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I attended this program called the Academy of Intuition Medicine. And, you know, I would say five years ago, I didn't believe in anything that was not hard science. Um, and after really like reading hundreds of books and going through experiential, uh, experiences. And, you know, I think that there's so much that we in mainstream culture have decided to like completely not trust and not be open, not, we're not open to it. Um, you know, this intuitive side, this, this connected connection to the field. I mean, Freud even spoke about this, this collective, this field. Um, so it's just interesting that I think there's, a not a lot of space right now in Western culture, um, you know, to discuss things like intuition and this connection to other realms. Right. So, um, mm -hmm. I, I believe it, but I've had to experience many things in order to believe it, you know? And so I think, right. um, it's fascinating. Uh, mm -hmm. so 
what? And here, here we are talking and you have a, a big audience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Five years ago, I was reading Christopher Hitchens and would, you know, would never in a million years uh, thought that I would be, you know, having conversations like this. So it's, you know, you just never know what, what's going to happen in your life, I guess. <laughs> This consciousness is coming to us. It's coming to people like us. It's it's barging in and it, it's telling you to put down those books and open your heart and trust what you feel. And a lot of people are having similar experiences and and, you know, people need guides in in this because it's easy to lose one way, one's way. It's it's easy to be deceived by a teacher's or business people that exploit uh, people's vulnerability around this, but the people that are doing authentically and are really aligned with helping people heal and helping the world heal are, you know, finding each other and coming together. And more and more people are, are having the same experience that you're describing. And I believe it's coming from this consciousness. It's, it's coming into us from from the larger field of consciousness to to wake human beings up to the destruction that they're causing uh, and to start looking at how to occupy the planet in a different way that's not so destructive. Beautiful. Yes. Dan, um, what do you want to tell our listeners about their health and wellness? What's sort of like your main takeaway or it could just be on on just wellness in general? What do you want to tell our audience as kind of like your final thoughts? And I don't know if you just shared your final thoughts because it felt very much inspirational and as a takeaway. Um, so that could be it too. But uh, if there's any, any like last words you want to share. I think for, you know, for, for health and wellness, to the extent that you feel disconnected and alone, that uh, it's not a good terrain for health and that the body does not respond well to it that finding connection, human connection, spirit connection, connection to the earth, connection to plants and animals, to ancestors, connection to love, all of those things are the, are the pathways for healing. And there's a remarkable capacity that the body has to heal itself, of course, because we wouldn't be alive for 10 seconds if the body wasn't doing a trillion things without us, without without any doctors or any expertise, the body is keeping us standing up and breathing all the time. And that is the greatest healing resource that we have, but it requires connection. Mm. Yeah. I think that we're very much disconnected, um, especially in Western culture. Thank you, Dan. And mm -hmm. are there any resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you, your work, maybe, um, I would say upcoming workshops, but we might not be, you know, um, making the show live for uh, a little bit. So we can add that later. But if there are any resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you, I would ask you to share it. Well, I have, um, you know, we have, Emily and I have a website. It's uh, seenwithyourheart.com. It's the, all of those words put together, seenwithyourheart.com. And that is the, you know, the source that um, where we, we post the, you know, the upcoming courses and classes that we're offering. Uh, people can inquire for if they want to do individual work, uh, couples uh, constella constellations that we do. And it has our, our contact. So that, that's probably the best way to um, 
uh, to contact us. And, you know, hopefully we'll have more, uh, you know, more interesting offerings, uh, you know, coming down the road. And, and you know, we're really looking just to um, be able to touch more people with uh, what we're doing. And we're, you know, doing trainings and and uh, su- supporting others and being able to, to bring uh, not just constellations, but all types of uh, uh, intuitive medicine, energy medicine uh, out into the world in all its forms. So it's seeingwithyourheart.com. We'll add it to the show notes. And Dan, are you on social media at all, any other place, or is that just the, the best place to find you? Mm, we have Seen With Your Heart on Facebook. I'm, I'm, I get a little bit overwhelmed and my, I have, you can look up, you can find me on Facebook, but it's I'm, it's very personal. I just, if you want to see what a goofball I am, <laughs> you can friend me and you'll just hear a lot of, uh, I just use it to make myself laugh. <laughs> That's a good, good reason. <laughs> oh, thank you. Not everybody gets my jokes, but I, 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 if I laugh at it, I throw it up on Facebook and, <laughs> and take your chances. <laughs> I love it. I think we have a similar sense of humor. So I, I will add you actually right after this. Um, okay. Dan, th- thank you so much for your time. Uh, just felt very touched and moved by the work that you're doing and the kind of like everything that you're kind of contributing to the collective um, through the m- mythology, through your wisdom, through your tools and frameworks and and just philosophy in life. So thank you so much for, for spending the time with us. Oh, uh, it's um, delighted, Yasmin. And I really appreciate what you're doing, bringing... Uh, uh, this work and the other interviews that you're doing, uh, you know, to new audiences. And uh, it's really beautiful. I, I, I love the work that you're doing. And I'm, uh, it's been so delightful talking to you. It's It's been my pleasure. Oh, thank you so much, Dan. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about family constellations and how they can change your life. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. And please drop us a line and tell us what you enjoyed about the show on Gateways to Awakening. Thanks again.